Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 307th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Stacy Hyde. Stacy is the president of Envision Financial Planning, an independent REA based in Memphis, Tennessee, that oversees nearly $200 million in assets under management for 206 client households. What's unique about Stacy, though, is how to gain more flexibility and independence for her firm, she and her partner decided to drop their FINRA licenses and launch their own REA while continuing their relationship with Commonwealth as their now former broker-dealer platform. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Stacey and her partner decided to drop the broker-dealer licenses and drop out of the corporate RA structure altogether, transitioning instead to fully owning their own independent RA, but remaining affiliated to their now former broker-dealer so they could keep the benefits of having the back office tech and investment support. Why Stacy wanted to create her own investment advisory agreement for her firm from scratch so that she could simplify language for clients and help them better understand the firm's offerings and the true nature of the relationship. And why Stacy and her firm implement a fee schedule where the tiers are not graduated, but instead of hard break points where after a certain threshold, clients could see an outright drop in their fees, which makes it easier for Stacy to communicate the fee schedule to clients while also incentivizing them to add funds and consolidate their accounts with Stacy to reap the benefits of those reduced fee breakpoints. We also talk about how Stacy and her firm built their client base by both leveraging client referrals and an advisor network that has a long-standing relationship with a national steel company, where Stacy is one of the advisors in a niche service offering that provides the company's employees with advice on their benefits packages and eventually their retirement rollovers. How throughout most of Stacy's career, she struggled to find the right position that fit her desire to help clients and eventually decided that she would have to hang her own shingle as an independent to be able to serve clients exactly the way that she wanted. And how even though it was difficult to transition away from her most recent employer, Stacy found comfort in the fact that clients ultimately rallied around her and offered support, which made her realize the greater impact that we really have in clients' lives beyond just being their advisor. And be starting to listen to the end, where Stacy shares how even though she loves to travel to Colorado, she was afraid of taking more personal trips as she didn't want to be seen as an inattentive advisor. But as more clients are embracing virtual and asynchronous meetings, she's realized that she can do more of what she loves and be her authentic self while still staying connected with clients. Why Stacy wishes that she could have gone independent much sooner and attributes the delay to her internalization of societal messages that she believes reinforces a lack of confidence in women and makes them question their abilities to build a career on their own, which took her years to overcome for herself. And why Stacy believes that it's important that advisors show clients that they truly care and are not motivated purely by compensation, as it's the caring that creates the better alignment, trust, and overall a more successful career. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Stacy Hyde. Welcome, Stacy Hyde, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. It's really an honor to be here. I think I've listened to most all of your podcasts. Oh, awesome. I appreciate that. And and I'm excited to have you on today. And and I get to talk about what I think is a really fascinating shift that's happening in the in the industry right now that I, I know you're kind of living at the the front end, the bleeding edge of uh you know, for the 
the, like the better part of the past 20 years or so, there's been this kind of split in the industry of advisors that came up in the broker dealer environment and continue in the broker dealer environment, advisors that came up in the RA side of the industry that continue in the RA side of the industry. And this sort of slow and steady, but very persistent uh, trickle of advisors that have been moving from the broker dealer environment into the RA environment. And I, I still remember when I went through that transition uh, very early on in in my career, like I and I had like the twenty four month countdown calendar before my firm or licenses would lapse. So like, let's see how this RA thing goes because I still got two years to go back before I have to go retest. And and you know all this fear of like what happens if we if we drop our FINRA licenses because there's so much change that happens if you do leave a broker dealer and 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 fully transition to the RA channel. And so this this shift has begun in the past couple of years where a couple of broker dealers have started offering RIA platforms, RIA options where you can transition to be an RIA and still work within the broker dealer. I guess use the broker dealer's platform, but you you literally aren't with the broker dealer side anymore. You're solely operating with an RA license, not your FINRA licenses. And I know you have you've done a version of this transition with Commonwealth, who can give a shout out to them, like one of the one of the early uh, broker dealers that started to make this transition and offer RA platforms. And so I just I'm 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 really excited to hear more of your perspective of this journey of like how you come to the decision to drop your broker dealer license, but not your broker dealer. It's, it's an interesting story. Um, I think the biggest thing that started it was when we would have our branch audits, we never had any feedback about something on the RA side. It was all like, you know, where's this prospectus or where's this? And what I realized is we really didn't know how to act not in our client's best interest. We only knew how to be discretionary advisors and do the right things all the time. And so it became, quite frankly, the way we were. And so what we did by dropping our FINRA licenses was really just align the way we did business with the reality of our registrations. So did that have... I guess just like revenue complications for you. I mean, did you have a lot of business or existing clients on on the BD side or like paying BD trails where there were a bunch of economic ramifications of doing this decision? Or had you already largely built your client base on the advisory side enough that it was less of a transition and more of a let's just turn off the, the, the FINRA side since we're not doing much there anymore? We had about 94% of our revenue was advisory fees and about 6% was a legacy um, trails or annuity compensation or something like that because we had sold some annuity contracts back in 2007 when it was the great race to who could offer the best income rider and then they all but broke a bunch of insurance companies during the financial crisis. Right. Where like everyone said the annuities were a bad deal and it turned out the annuities are actually really good deals. So, so much so that the insurance companies struggled to keep them going and then they repriced all of them and those deals don't, don't exist in the same way anymore, but no, they still try to make them. Yeah. They still try to make them sound as good, but they're not nearly as good. And one in particular that we probably have 
15 or 20 of them and we've turned income on on all of them. And the reason that I liked that one, because I've sold very few VAs in my career, but I could do the math on how that writer worked on a piece of legal paper in my calculator. So I was like, okay, this has to be good for my client because it's this easy to understand. And that's always sort of been my lens is the easier it is to understand, the better it's likely to be for my client. And so what we did, and I guess the advantage of being with a broker dealer is those are now Commonwealth house accounts, but our clients signed an agreement to share information with us so we can still help our clients with that. Of course, we can't log in and do it now. We have to have the client on the phone or get Commonwealth to get us a form and get the client to sign it. But, you know, we don't have that many. And so those are good contracts, as we both said before, they don't exist anymore. And so um, it just makes all the sense in the world to keep those. um, And Commonwealth gets that revenue. But that's okay with me because it's the right thing for my client and it makes it easier for me to take care of them. So, uh, so none of that revenue comes back to you at this point, just their Commonwealth house accounts. So that slice of what was 6% of revenue, like it goes to them and, and that's what they get for the fact that they, they have to be part of the calls. They have to you know, uh, uh, facilitate interactions with the insurance company or any transactions because it's securities business, you know, the securities license now. So they, they, they get that bit of revenue and then they do that work and, and you're good with that, that trade off. Right. So we made the transition to give up our FINRA licenses in September 30th of 2020. And Then in July 1 of this year, we launched our own registered investment advisor. So Envision Financial Planning is a registered investment advisor. We're SEC registered. But we stayed within the Commonwealth ecosystem. So that was a very easy transition for our clients. And so now we have a dedicated person at Commonwealth, like if we need information on a particular contract for a client meeting or we need paperwork we just call or email them and they get us whatever we need for that meeting or for that research or whatever it is whatever the case may be and so i guess just over time as clients use those income riders cash out the contracts don't need them anymore at, at, at some point pass uh that just the the amount of that business slowly winds down of its natural course over time as well. Correct. And especially with the market pullback now, you know, most of those are paying out at six or seven percent and have been for, you know, the last seven, eight, nine years. Right. And they'll continue to pay. So the trails on those are much smaller now because the clients have been taking it. been drawing them down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's it's notable, at least relative to how some other broker dealer environments work, that uh, like Commonwealth didn't reassign these client accounts to other advisors when you made this transition. Like they made them house accounts and have their own internal house account staffing teams to, I guess, as I think of it, like play, play nice in the sandbox. Like they're. They're not trying to solicit the clients for other business to grow the business. They're just handling the existing house accounts that are there. 
Absolutely, because especially like in our case, they know we have substantial other relationships with these clients and that would be sort of they'd be competing against themselves if they didn't help us facilitate it because we have you know the million or two million dollar managed accounts and there's a two hundred thousand dollar annuity or used to be a two hundred thousand dollar annuity where the client's taking monthly income it's an interesting uh, framing and point that look when it's all under the same when it's all under the same roof, like really why, why would it even be in their interest to try to, uh, you know, woo, woo the clients, woo the house account clients for more because you're already using their platform for the rest of the business anyways. Like they're, they're going to do okay. You're already working with them and, and, and servicing those clients. So I, so take me back a little bit more just to the, like, the point that you're deciding to let go of of the FINRA licenses, because I know for a lot of us, like we spent a long time like having those licenses, fought hard to get those licenses, sat for all those exams. Uh, just what was running through your head as you're trying to decide, are we are like, are we really going to drop these licenses and walk away from this side of the business? I think for us, it was really a, pretty easy thing to do. One of our advisors on our team was already IAR only. He had given his FINRA licenses up before he joined our firm. And so it was just myself and our chief investment officer, who's also our chief compliance officer. I think he may have been a little bit like, oh my God, my boss is making me give up my FINRA licenses. But he also is a super smart guy and saw the writing on the wall like I did and was just as frustrated with some of the stuff that we were having to do um, on the FINRA side that it just became much cleaner once that was what we had. And then Commonwealth also, I think we were a little worried about how we handled like an accommodation account, like company stock or something like that. So we have what's called a, um, customer service account. So if somebody has um, just company stock or some legacy position that they want all in one place, but they don't want to pay a fee on it, we just open a separate account for them and put it there and don't charge a fee on it. And so that works out pretty well for us. We can still trade that account, but it gets like, you know, the lowest fee type stuff at Commonwealth. And um, for oh, right, because if if you want to accommodate like holding an existing stock position that isn't being traded, like just you, you need a framework to literally have like a a non traded account, but it can't be a regular brokerage account because you're not securities licensed on that side. So you need like a non advisory account attached to the RIA side of the business. Right. And, you know, we also selfishly for us don't necessarily want that to be on the um, fee-based platform because then there's fees that get charged to us for that. So this is a nice option because we're not being charged anything by Commonwealth for it and the client is not being charged anything for us Mm. for it. But, you know, also as they divest of some of that company stock because they right. they meet their employer's holding requirements. And so we start to diversify. We move that over to the managed account and it works great. 
Interesting. So, so how does the structure work for, well, I guess there's sort of a split here since you were on the corporate RIA side for a while and then transitioned to the, to having your own SEC registered RIA. So I'll, I'll, I'll come back to the having your own firm part in a moment, but just when you were operating, like you dropped your FINRA license and, and said, we're going to be IAR only under the corporate RIA. How, like, just how does that work in terms of revenue you get, revenue the the platform gets? I mean, the broker dealer world, you know, I get you know, GDC comes down, I get my grid payout off of GDC. Was it a similar structure on the uh, corporate RIA side, where there's a gross advisory revenue and you get a grid payout, or is it a different kind of structure? Well, once you go IAR only, your payout goes to a hundred percent on advisory. Um, regular advisory and then Commonwealth assesses a um, sort of an, it's called an admin fee for, you know, billing the model management system that that sort of support. Um, So we got a raise in that sense. And then the other thing that happened was because it was IAR, Instead of like their fee being based on the size of the account, we had one flat fee for our entire book. So it didn't matter if it was a $2 million account or a $25,000 account, it had the same admin fee on it, which kind of was nice. So, um, so I just want to make sure I, I, I follow. So there's a like, well, so I guess the, the admin fee that you're paying for billing and model management system and the rest. So that's a, is that a per, like per account fee, per client fee or percentage of revenue fee or basis a, points on assets fee? Like just how does that work? It's basically a basis points of assets in the managed account program. Okay. And it includes, you know, statements and performance reporting and sort of all that sort of stuff. Because we don't pay like an Orion or somebody like that. Commonwealth does that. And that's included in that um, fee. And so can I ask, like, what is that? Where does that fee sit at? I mean, you, you know, BD payouts, you're often at 88 to 92-ish kind of range once you once you hit a certain size and scale, at least for the, the pure independent BDs. So, you know, the they get eight to twelve percent ish. So what it like what is it what did it look like for the the RA side? Is it is it a similar fee? Is it lower? Is it structured differently? It's lower than that and it's it's based on what your assets under management are, your number of accounts and I think it also had a little bit of factor into the funds that Commonwealth got to keep, you know, when we went IAR only. So they did some sort of calculation and came back because we went from like a 95% payout on our managed book to 100. And so it was an, I guess it was, it really was probably a slight pay increase for us because we had you know, not a ton of trails and things like that. And we also converted, you know, a fair number of non-managed accounts to managed when we made this transition. Oh, because because you had a few clients that you weren't necessarily working with on the advisory side. But or they had you... an old account that wasn't, most right. of the time it was they had one or two accounts that had been there for 20 years that were, you know, like American funds that, 
where right. we did. And so and we'd never done anything. But once we did this, we're like, we can't really do that anymore. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. Right. Well, the, I guess the fund business is, is easier. Like I go grab my old American funds, A shares or C shares. I put them into F shares. I can move them into an advisory account and apply the fee. Like, so the it's the, which I guess is why, as you said, it's, it's the annuities that got stuck on the other end. Cause like, I can't convert them into, in a, advisory structures and put them in an advisory account as easily as I can do with with mutual funds if I need to make that transition. Yeah, and we did have a few American funds accounts that were at American funds on the BD side because they had rolled out of like a corporate retirement plan and it was easier okay. just to roll them out and leave them there. Yep. Those are pretty much, I think all but one of those is has paid out. People have withdrawn the whole thing. Okay. So... So you go from your your ninety something percent payout on the BD side to nominally the hundred percent IR payout minus admin fee of basis points that gets you to similar place or slightly better take home by the time you get to they get their or five five to seven percent uh, uh, plus some accounts that convert into advisory offset partially by some of the business that transitions to house accounts. And so you, you, you netted slightly more at the end of the day. Yeah, I think we did. And um, because the admin fee applied to us before, but it was, it was a different sort of sliding scale. And um, there was one, like if larger accounts, we definitely pay more because before when we were duly registered, larger accounts paid a lower amount, but then we had a practice level maximum and our admin fee actually went slightly below what we had before we transitioned. Hmm. So then the other question I've got just as you were queuing up this transition, well, I guess, first of all, what, what was the size of the advisory firm at the time like what was the the AUM base that you were doing this transition on you know with the market pullback it probably wasn't you know and it was pre-covid run-up it was probably pretty similar to what it is right now which is right around um 200 million okay so uh so you've got this 200 million AUM firm at the time as you're deciding like we're not going to we're not going to keep our FINRA licenses anymore. We're, we're transitioning full to the RIA side. So I guess I'm, I like the next thing I'm wondering is just, did you look at other RA platforms out there? Did you look at hanging your own shingle and going to the, you know, Schwab Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Pershings of the world? Like what, what was the thought process around doing the Commonwealth RIA versus just there are lots of other RA platforms out there who would like to talk to a $200 million advisor. I think for us, it really was, we were very happy with Commonwealth when we had, um, we were originally um, inside of a local bank and founded and ran their wealth management group for nine years. And we had decided that, you know, really we want to be truly independent and, had going through that process had really gotten to know the folks at Commonwealth well, trusted them, felt like they had our back. And quite frankly, Commonwealth made it very, very easy. There was no repapering of accounts. Clients didn't right. get new account numbers. 
um, it was it was very seamless from the client standpoint. The only people who really had to sign anything were those that had the legacy uh, annuity products. We had to get them to sign um, authorization to share information and a few of the direct accounts. We had to do a little bit of paperwork, but it was very, very seamless to the clients and it wasn't a huge lift on us. I will say the um, transition team at Commonwealth, it was, it was sort of full, I've gone full circle with the same transition coordinator that I worked with in 2010 um, has now transitioned us to IAR only and RA only. And she's one of my favorite humans. So, so then now take us forward two years to it's summer of this year and I think you said you, you've now transitioned to your own SEC registered RIA, so you're not on the Commonwealth corporate RIA side. So what led to that change? I think we really wanted to be truly independent. And it also was sometimes clunky to un- try to explain that it's Envision, but it's also Commonwealth, but it's this. And so... And we wanted a little bit more flexibility on just how we ran our practice um, down to some pretty um, granular stuff like the workflows that Commonwealth had available just didn't work for us. And we wanted to use Trello and that sort of thing to run our practice and make it work um, for us. And so we got more flexibility that way. We also cannot be, we cannot call ourselves fee only as long as we are under the Commonwealth IAR because Commonwealth also owns a broker dealer. So they're definitely not fee only. And so being able to have that type of flexibility, I think, worked well for us. So, all right. So I'm curious, you mentioned like different workflows and using Trello, which I don't hear a lot. So like, what are... What are your different workflows and how are you using Trello in the firm? So we use Trello to track like to-dos, like um, client reviews. We've got a Trello card with checklists, what needs to be done. When we have client follow-up, we put it in there and it is a little bit easier to track, especially because um, as part of my evolution, I try to spend as much time as possible especially in the summer when it's 100 degrees with 90% humidity in Summit County, Colorado. And so Trello allowed me to track where things were without always having to email and go, did you did this get done? Did this get done? And have to log into each individual separate accounts. Trello makes it easy to see at a glance where we are on all these different projects and whether somebody has where they've taken it, you know, in the process of getting it done. So how does, how do you distinguish that from trying to use workflows within CRM systems? We, we put everything in our CRM as far as, you know, what's going on with like a client meeting after a client meeting, the notes get uploaded, um, things of that nature. But the, if there's any knock on Commonwealth, it's that the CRM is not as probably as great as I would like it to be as far as things like 
um, workflows and being able to see at a glance everything that's gone on with the client. So we we actually are very old school. We have a Word document where we dump all the notes from each client after a meeting into there. So it's real easy to go and kind of get a, okay, this is what happened last time. This is what happened two times ago. It has kind of key information at the top of it. So we do some duplicate work, but by having Trello, we make sure that all that stuff gets done. Okay. Interesting. And so, and so I, I take it then your your base CRM system is is what Commonwealth offers. That is correct. Yes. Which is their uh, advisor three hundred and sixty platform. Mm-hmm. Okay. So interesting. So so the kind of the evolution for you then, if I'm if I'm following this, is essentially we're we're with Commonwealth on the corporate RIA side. But we're having some challenges around how we how we handle workflows because Advisor 360 isn't quite as deep on the the workflow systems as we want from the CRM. So we want to do out something outside, which we started doing in Trello. Except the corporate RA doesn't want us to live outside in Trello because, understandably, compliance wants you to live in the the CRM system that they can do their compliance oversight on. And so then that that becomes a challenge point for you that says, well, maybe we just need to stand up our own RIA and then we can make our own decisions about the systems that we use as our own RIA. And we can be fee only and we can, you know, do some, um, potentially do some other stuff, although we really haven't done anything outside of what Commonwealth would have let us do, but it, it, and I think also on the branding side, it's much cleaner now because we are in vision financial planning. And the other thing, like the disclosure documents, the form ADV 2A, Commonwealth is like 130 something pages and right. maybe six or seven or whatever are really applicable to yeah. our clients. And so now we have our own ADV. We have our own investment advisory agreement that's in plain English and is all about their relationship with mm-hmm. us. And I think that's been hugely popular. I had so many clients going, I think this is the first time I've ever read this because this, this was manageable. Interesting. So you like just rent, went and remade and did your own advisory agreement into how, how you wanted to word it and say it? Yes, absolutely. We did. Uh, out of curiosity, is that something you'd be willing to share just to, for others who want to see like what does a more plain English advisory agreement look like? Yeah, I don't think I have a problem with that. Okay. Uh appreciate I mean, that. I mean, I publish our fee schedule on our website because that's a pet peeve of mine, like trying to, you know, hearing about something and wanting a little more information yeah. and then they're like, contact us for pricing. I'm like, just tell me what it cost. <laughs> I I will admit I am of a very similar mentality as well. Oh. Uh, you know, we save you time, call us to find out what we cost. Like, that's not saving me time if I have to call you to find out what it costs. Yeah. And then uh. you're going to call me 82 times and that sort of thing. It also, I think it helps people self-select. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah. I, you know, if they look at your fee schedule and they're going to freak out, like, I, I would just rather not talk to you. Like, it just saves me time rather than having you basically freak out about the fee schedule after I talk to you and then having wasted a half an hour, an hour of my time with someone that just was not going to be willing to pay full-fledged advisory fees. Well, and my approach on fees is I'm probably lower than the industry average, but I don't discount them. 
everybody okay. pays the published rate and it's a very easy fee for me to defend and I just go at it from a fairness standpoint. I mean, there's, if I give you a discount, then am I overcharging other people? But since I know that my fees are at the lower end, I have no problem whatsoever saying these are the fees and this is how we're going to earn them. And so, well, so two things. One, just for folks that are interested for the advisory agreement, uh, this is episode 307. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 307, uh, we'll have a section with the show notes that you can uh, download if you want to if you want to take a look and just uh, see see a plain English word advisory agreement, which sounds uh, sounds oddly uh, glorious to me because so so many of ours are are really not. By the time the lawyers do what lawyers tend to do, bless their souls. Uh, so on the on the advisory fee side, then I, like how are you how are you pricing and structured on the advisory fee side? What, what does know, that fee schedule look like for you? We start at one percent, and then at five hundred thousand, we drop to point nine. Over a million, we drop to point eight, and we do a breakpoint fee schedule. So we charge all assets at one level rate, so it's super easy for people to understand. Um, so it's not like graduated as you go. If if like if I'm over. If I'm over a million, just like everything is at the flat 0.8%. Yes. Which okay. is why we don't discount. <laughs> right, we, right, right. It's already kind of a discount. So I guess like it's it's not it's not like graduated thresholds as you go a little bit at one, a little bit at point nine, a little bit at point eight. It's just for like hard hard breakpoint thresholds. Correct. So why I just curious, like why that structure? Because I, I feel like more commonly I see graduated than sort of breakpoint cliffs. It, I guess sort of the mantra that I have always lived is if I wouldn't like it, then I don't want to offer that. <laughs> and I also prefer simple and that is a very simple, it's easy to communicate and it's, it's very clear. So there's not, I don't think that anybody is ever surprised at, you know, what they're paying or that sort of thing. Okay. And we Interesting. do. And does it create any walkiness for you of just, I'm just sort of envisioning fee billing dynamics of like, you know, my, the client who goes from $998,000 to a million oh two and like the, the, uh, the fee drops dramatically or conversely like a client that dips I mean, I think that means you could, you could dip slightly under a threshold in a market pullback and end up, actually end up with a higher fee because you crossed that threshold. Like, does that crop yeah, up for you? It, it, it does. I mean, and I'm sure that I haven't looked at the fee billing for this quarter, but um, yes, but given where our fee levels are, I don't have any trouble with it. And also in something like this, um, we're certainly doing a lot more work right now, like all advisors are, to try to, you know, keep people calm and that sort of thing. And I don't know that it's it's any, you know, at the end of the day, I think on average, clients' fees are lower. And so they're, they get that. And it's, yeah. like I said, it's it's pretty straightforward. It is, a, it is a motivator for some clients to add funds so that their fees go down. Okay. Doesn't hurt as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess because that's a good point. Um, 
uh, is truly like when you're not just graduated, but you have a cliff schedule, like you can literally get to the point where clients can add more assets, cross a break point, end out paying slightly less. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a deeper relationship. You've consolidated more with them. Like that probably still turns out very well in the long run for you, even if it's a very short term uh, fee, fee step backwards because they added added enough assets across a break, uh, threshold. Yeah. And I can think of, of several instances where it encouraged clients to consolidate assets with this. You know, they had accounts at this broker dealer, this broker dealer, and then they're like, eh, I'm looking at your fee schedule. I'm just going to give it all to you. And that's that's a good place to be longer term because then we can really do a more holistic view of the entire relationship. And quite frankly, it's easier because I'm not trying to go, can you bring in that statement? I really want to make sure we're not right. overweighted somewhere where we shouldn't be overweighted. Right. So interesting for the the fee schedule structure. So so as you made this transition to say we want to be our our full standalone SEC registered RA, did that create any changes for the relationship and structure with Commonwealth? I mean like do they do they still charge you the same? Does it still otherwise the same service arrangement? What what else shifted? It's pretty much the same service arrangement. I'll probably go back to them and renegotiate my admin fee a little bit because we are, they're not quote unquote doing our compliance, but they do, they have stood up a whole group that helped us draft our ADV, helped us get everything filed. They really supported us through that whole process. Um, And they've helped us, you know, select our email monitoring system and, you know, that sort of compliance tech stack that we've used, we've really leaned on them for that. Um, so from that standpoint, they've continued to be super helpful. Like our compliance consultant, like she's one of my favorites. We were having some trouble getting Commonwealth tech people to talk to the um, compliance monitoring people so they could get it in there. Oh, man, she had it done within an hour, I think. I don't know what she said to anybody, but all I know is all of a sudden we had no more roadblocks. So that was huge. So, so I guess this helped me visualize at this point, like what does the firm do for you at this point? Like what, what do they do for the admin fee versus just what, what you do in, in your own firm as your own firm? You know, what they're doing for the admin fee is they give us a, you know, a single sign on tech stack. So the whole advisor 360 um, and make it, you know, we use money guide pro, we use right capital. So the sign in for that is through our um, Commonwealth portal. It's nice. It pulls data directly from our um, portfolio management. So we're getting portfolio management, CRM, um, Information security, which I will say does, that is something that terrifies me how smart the bad guys have gotten. And so being able to rely on their expertise and that has been huge and, you know, helping out with storage and backup of that data as well. And so all that tech is included in the admin fee, like 
Not just the SSO, but like CRM, portfolio management, your financial planning software. Is that all bundled in or there's still some separate line items? There's there's a little bit of separate line item, but it's not much. I mean, it's probably less than – Clay and I have a higher one than um, Hank because he doesn't use like Morningstar and stuff like that. So we have a small fee that we pay – um, each month to Commonwealth for access to a lot of that type of software and research and things of that nature. Not, is that a basis points thing or percentage as well, or is that just a flat fee of like? It's a flat fee. Okay. And, so a little know, bit of a little bit of the tech that I guess just doesn't fit the included package flows through, and the and the rest is in the admin fee. That's correct. And so are there are there other things that are tied to the admin fee as well, or is this sort of functionally for you like a, a, a tech stack, tech solution fee? It's functionally a tech stack solution fee. They also handle billing, which I know that's been a focus of the SEC. Mm. And so it's nice to have somebody that has all the right stuff to make sure that those are all getting billed appropriately right. and that sort of thing. It's also nice to you know, sort of ask an expert, you know, a client asks something that we don't run across all the time. They're, they've got a great advanced planning team. So we like that. And I've also made, you know, a lot of good friends in the community. So in that, I guess I'm wondering in that vein, as you were transitioning to be SEC registered and not under their IAR, did that again, lead you in any direction of looking elsewhere or standalone or other custodians or other platforms? Like, did you we had look a around and people, decide to stay or didn't even want to look? We had a couple people reach out to us and, and do it. But to me, it, it felt like, I don't know, that, that would have been much more intrusive for my clients. I can't say that I would never, you know, look around, but we're, we're pretty happy with our ecosystem. Um, we appreciate the support we get. We feel like we're, you know, paying all in all a pretty fair fee. Like I said, I'd probably like to negotiate down a little bit. But what we get for what we're paying I feels like a good trade-off. And um, so, yeah, we really didn't take a hard look somewhere else. And now that we are RIA only, if we have clients that really want to use Schwab because they've always used Schwab or whatever, now that's an option as well, right. which might make, you know, an acquisition of an advisor that or a roll-in of an advisor that has a book at Schwab, that would make that doable, whereas previously it really wouldn't have worked. Interesting. So... So help us understand then overall just the nature of the advisory businesses that exist today. So you said there's about 200 million under management. So how many how many clients is that? It's 206 households. Okay. And and then what does the team structure look like for you to to service 206 households? So we have five employees including myself. We've got another advisor who has of that 206 somewhere under 50 or his. And then I have um, 
a partner who um, I actually made a partner in 2021. Um, he is our chief investment officer and also our, he got a new title when we became RA only. He's our chief compliance officer. Oh, um, he won that prize. Okay. He won that prize. Um, so I figured I'm, I had to hold on to the CFO role because I also am a CPA. So I figured, yeah, Clay can do the CCO. Yeah. And he's great at it. And it, it is, I think it does make more sense for him to have that function. And it's also a g- good check on me since I have the bulk of the clients. It's helpful for me to have somebody to bounce that off of. Right. And, um, and then we have um, sort of a client service office administrator who... It's been with this just for a year. I'd known her for a long time, but had really struggled with that position and finally decided to really sort of up the value that I placed on that. And that has been one of the best decisions I've made. And then we have a college intern who essentially works full time. She works about 35 hours a week. Doing doing what within the firm? Um, she gets preps for client meetings, does paperwork, that sort of thing. Okay. So, uh, so I'm curious, you, you, you mentioned like had struggled with the client service office administrator position. So would just love to hear more about that. Like what, what were you doing in the past that wasn't working and what changed? Um, you know, we had, um, one person who was actually referred to us by a client that had worked as an, a, an assistant in like a wirehouse and had been let go and was looking for something else, but I think really struggled with the pace that we had. And so she wound up resigning. And then I had, um, a woman who had recently graduated from college that her mother and I have known each other since we were 10 and she came on board, but she never, she was a pandemic graduate. So she had never intended to come back to Memphis when she graduated and she was great and did a, a super job and she would still be here had she not moved, I think. Um, but she got an opportunity to move to Atlanta, wrote a really great uh, letter of recommendation. And so she moved. And so when we, when I started looking around and she did me a great service, she gave me like four months notice. And so we were able to research and find Courtney and bring her on board. And then she and Caroline had some overlap. So that was very, very helpful. And you know, Courtney's been in a lot of different roles, never in financial services, but as far as just great people skills. And that is what I realized that it's very hard to teach that real interest in people in, um, and just understanding sort of how people work and what they want and you know, and she scales really well. And she also thinks of things that maybe I don't think of. She's also got some great social media stuff. So we launched a podcast and it was a little bit hit or miss. And now she shows up in my office every Tuesday at 
nine o'clock and says, are we ready to podcast today? <clears throat> and that gets the podcast going and we get it out there. And it's really a podcast designed for folks that are not in our demographic right now, but that it's information that clients tell us that they wish they'd had, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. So we wanted to sort of put that out there and that's what we're doing with the podcast, better financial health in 15 minutes or less. Very cool. So, uh, so I guess this help me understand more what, what changed in the role between who, like where the struggles have been historically and who you ultimately, uh, hired, like, what were you, uh, just what's changed in practice for you in, in your know, day, day to day, week to week life? Um, the current person in the role really thinks ahead and is very bright and says, okay, the last three times Stacy's done this, she's wanted this. I'll just get there before her and have this and hand mm-hmm. it to her and we'll go on. And I've been able to truly, that old Harvard Business School article, Who's Got the Monkey? Mm -hmm. She's been able to take the monkey and the care and feeding, and I'm able to step back and have full confidence that it's going to get done. It's going to be handled appropriately. And I, I think my aha moment where I was like, okay, this is above and beyond. We have a client who is pretty ill, um, can't really get out much, but loves to look at her accounts and for whatever reason had locked herself out of the portal to see her stuff. Courtney tried and tried to walk her through it and couldn't and finally just went to her house and did it. (laughs) And you can't really teach somebody to care about like that. Yeah. And it was just, that was kind of the aha moment. And then we also had a referral come in from another client and she had Googled her ahead of time and sent me this sort of a thing about, about her. And she's like, oh, we're really going to like her a lot. And sure enough, we really like her a lot. (laughs) So then how did you find Courtney? I, in a former life, was a triathlete, and we used to ride bikes together. And when I used to work at another regional bank, her mother, before she retired, ran the big commercial lending unit. And so I had known her mother for years and had known Courtney from my triathlon days and had kind of kept in touch. And she was running all volunteer services for a charity that my husband and I, um, it's our biggest charitable gift outside of our church. Um, It's called Church Health. They provide healthcare to the working poor. So I had kind of stayed in touch and just kind of knew that she was the type of person I would like to be around. And I thought my clients would too. And that was a very good judgment call. Yeah. So then share with us now just where do all these clients come from Two two 206 clients over the years so what what's been the the growth and business development process for you to to bring on clients over the years most of our clients come from referrals from other clients and then we also are part of a group at commonwealth that was started by an advisor in nebraska 
um, and it's called the Calm Water Financial Network, that works with new core teammates. And so we also, they got us to help. New, new core, like new NUCR, core new, new core steel. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, that new core, core. Okay. And um, we work with four new core divisions. And so as those teammates get ready to retire, because they've worked with us over the last seven years, we become an obvious person to capture that rollover, continue to work with them in retirement. So we get a lot from that relationship as well. So help me understand more of how that works. Just like what's, what exactly is the relationship? What do you, what do you do? Cause it sounds like you're, you're in there earlier than solely like, someone gives you a name when they're in the retirement transition. So what the, what we do is the division uh, contracts with um, the calm water network and we go in and we meet, we do new hire presentations where we go over their benefits, you know, 401k stock purchase, disability, you know, the whole benefits package. And then we, depending on the division, either once a year, two times a year, or four times a year, sometimes more, they have us come in and we meet with employees one-on-one for an hour and they can ask us any question they want about their finances. We'll help them with their 401k allocation. We'll help them um, if they want to sell some stock to fund you know, their child's new car, we'll help them do that. Um, we've helped, uh, teammates get out of debt, set up a debt plan. And it's pretty cool because all the employer finds out about those meetings is, did they show up for their meeting when they had it? And so we do that and we're there from, you know, we have 16 meetings over two days. And so it's a, and you'll go from somebody who has done everything right and they're close to retirement to somebody in their forties and it's, and they're allowed to bring their spouses. And so sometimes you feel like a marriage counselor, Uh Um, but it's, it's really gratifying work. And I think it's definitely made me a better financial planner because I've had to meet with so many people and I've seen so many different scenarios. And, and so like, these are not separate engagements that you charge for. This is just like part of supporting the new core relationship. We actually get paid. The company pays for us to be on site. So we get paid a fee for our time for being on site those days. Okay. Those two days we're obviously not in our office. We're at, we're at the plant and we're meeting with teammates all day and the company pays for that. Now, if they want us to manage money outside of that, that's a separate engagement. Um, and the employee pays those fees. Okay. And, and so in practice, that means you get to start being seen and building some relationships. The company is happy because just employees who have financial questions are getting their financial questions answered, which usually helps reduce turnover and other issues like that. Uh, And so uh, at some point, a portion of them end up becoming longer term clients because they've had good interactions with you, with Calm Water. So that's the phone call that gets made when they retire. 
Yes. And in many cases, we have been working with them for years, you know, targeting a retirement date and, you know, helping them like, okay, you've got to stay till this date because that's Nucor has a last day rule on their profit sharing. You have to be employed Mm -hmm. on the last day of the year to get the profit sharing. And unlike a lot of companies where profit sharing is like three or four percent, it's often 11. Last year it was 30 percent. So all that couldn't even go in the 401k. They were getting large cash payouts as well. So, you know, I guess company culture wise, it's quite unique. So how do you get to be part of the the Comwater financial network? That actually came through Commonwealth because the advisory practice that had started this, it took on a, they did such a good job. It took a, on a life of its own and yeah. more and more new core divisions were saying, Hey, we want you to work with our folks. And, you know, now they probably have 15 people on their team, but it was way more than what they could, uh, accommodate. So they went to the president of Commonwealth and asked Wayne Bloom, hey, we've got divisions that want this in these locations. Who should I talk to? And for the ones in our area, you know, Wayne said, well, you should talk to Stacy and her team. And so they did. And we were one of the very first groups that joined when they expanded beyond themselves. And okay. so... Um, We've now been doing it since 2014. And so you don't necessarily have to be like pay separately to be part of the network at the end of the day. They get a percentage of the fees. So because it was their okay. relationship, we get 80% of the fees and they get 20%. Early on, they got a bigger percentage because we didn't know that much and they were having to hold our hands more. But now um, we're at um, 80% and they get 20% of it. And so the 20, that's, that's the, like the advisory firm that originally made this whole new core relationship happen in the first place. They're like the, the grand solicitor for, for the whole relationship in essence. Correct. And they also still do some stuff. Um, like when we have the visits at the division, they have the software that handles the signups. They communicate with the division about those and, Um, They handle the billing for those visits. Now, once it becomes an advisory account, basically there's a split advisory code that says, hey, this 20% goes back to the folks in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Which I guess essentially just it's a a version of a solicitor uh, Mm -hmm. uh, arrangement, right? Just, you know, someone someone who does the introduction gets a portion of the the advisory fee. They just got to a really scaled up one with a really big company, which makes a good opportunity for everyone. Yeah, it, it is. And I really, you know, there's white collar jobs in there, obviously, but there's a lot of blue collar, very millionaire yeah. next door folks. And I just really like the, I really like the people. And I guess the longer I've been in the business, the more uh, stock I put in, being able to understand what motivates people and how they think and Hmm. just liking the people. And I like these people a lot. So, uh, so for the rest of the client base, I mean, I understand that most of the growth comes from client referrals now, but you know, we, we can only get client referrals going now if we get clients going initially to get to the point that we have clients to refer. So how, 
like where did the client base come from early on as you were trying to get to the building point where you could you could live on mostly referral only system of starting out i guess in so it was 2002 started out at a um regional bank and so worked with the commercial banking group private client group so got referrals from them one commercial banker in particular he really introduced me to a lot of his clients and um still work with basically all of those people today and he's now retired and i work with he and his wife and so and then uh used to do a lot more retirement plans now i just do it if it's attached to um other relationships but one of my um tpa partners referred me into a psychology practice and the senior um, psychologist there has referred several of his um, clients to us as well. And so we've gotten some like that. I think we've gotten a couple because people have Googled me. Um, but it that's really been it because as far as social media marketing and things like that, we really haven't done any of that to speak of. And so what kinds of clients do you get at the end of the day? I mean, I can do sort of the math overall, 200 million under management and 206 clients. So like typical household is, is about a million dollars. But I mean, are you, are you mostly with younger folks? Are you mostly with retirees? Is there a particular type of retirees aside from the, the, the new core folks? Like what defines typical uh, client household for you? I think our typical client household is in their mid-50s and they're starting to think about retirement. And then we've worked, you know, and then our older ones are ones that that was the case then. And now they're 75 or in case I'm thinking of now, they're still working. And I keep telling them, I'm like, you could just sell this and do nothing. But um that hasn't seemed to be appealing enough for them to walk away as of yet. Um, so they sort of run the gamut. And then we've got several instances where we had the parents originally, and now the kids are clients and we're just continuing on. Our youngest client that's not attached to someone else's mid thirties. Um, and we do have like a lower asset minim minimum for younger clients than we do for retirees for obvious reasons. Right, right, right. And so in a world where most advisors try to grow through referrals with, I guess to say, varying levels of success, some, some, some struggle, do you have a sense as to why you, you seem to have gotten a lot more traction with growing through referrals than other advisors? I think a little bit of it is some of the value adds we do. It makes people talk about us like this time of year, we're helping our clients shop their part D plan. Um, the ones that are not tech savvy, we actually do it for them. We have a deep understanding of social security and when to claim and we, how the affordable care act qualifications for 
um, subsidies work. And we also, while I don't prepare tax returns, I do a lot of tax planning and forecasting and really making sure possibly even bullying a little bit to change their charitable contributions to QCDs when they're 70 and a half. Um, I think it becomes, we don't sound like your normal stockbroker. And so clients will be talking about that. And then they're like, well, my advisor doesn't do that. And then the other group that I think has really definitely some of my favorite clients is the husband really wants his wife to understand their financials a little bit better, but she hates his guy and it's always a guy. And so he's like, well, I like Stacy or so-and-so told me they really liked Stacy. And so they'll come in and those are fun because they're like, you can't gang up on me. And then we of course do something that he's like, Hey, Hey, that y'all ganged up on me. So Interesting. So, so kind of a specialization for couples where the husband historically has been the driver, but wants wants the wife to get more involved, and the wife has no interest in being more involved with the existing uh, advisor or broker relationship. So, you end up getting introduced as the as the as the person. Yeah, and like one client that I can think of, I had handled her husband's retirement plan through his employer and she came in with a family friend to meet with me we headed off immediately and then as time went on she had some significant accounts at two other um, traditional broker dealers and she was like I don't like them I like you 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 help me understand you encourage me to do stuff I want to do you know she wanted to do some charitable giving. I was like, okay, this is how we'll do it. Da, 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 da. And so we picked those up. So we do have a fair number of widow clients as well. Either some of them became widows while they worked with us. Some of them came to us when they became widows. So what has been your journey to come to the business at this point? I, I guess I'm wondering, like, did you start out as an advisor from scratch where you uh, like I want I want to be an advisor when I grow up out of college and came right into the business or or did you have a different path for how you came to the advisor career I started out my career I'm going to date myself working for Ernst and Winnie which very quickly became Ernst and Young in and did municipal finance verification work which basically means we checked numbers when a municipality issued new bonds to refund old bonds and did that for five years and hated it. I mean, hated it. And I remember when I went in to resign, the partner said, you can't quit. You're the best we've ever had at this. And it was so empowering because I thought if I hate it this bad and I'm really good at it, surely if I find something that I like, I'll at least be decent. Um, I like that. I like that processing. So when the boss says, don't quit, you're, you're the best we've had. That's not a compliment to stay. That just means if I'm good at, if I'm this good at this, I'll probably be pretty good at something I actually like. So I'm leaving faster. But the job I took was terrible. I did, um, bank on life insurance. So I went from one super specialized, boring practice area to another, but I met 
a woman who introduced me, she was a wholesaler for Pacific Life, and she introduced me to um, a guy who had a small independent broker. He actually owned his own broker dealer and did financial planning work and was looking for somebody and really learned the business working with him. Um, Had to have a heart to heart when he called me his girl. And I was like, I'm not your girl. Yeah. But I learned a ton from him. And, but then when I really wanted to really focus just on growing my own clients and being an advisor, that didn't work. And so I wound up leaving and that's when I joined the regional bank. Okay. So it, it sort of took me all over. Um, and I got my, I, I got my CPA when I was at the accounting firm and started my CFA. Um, and then when I was at the Bowley firm, I got my CFP and another level of my CFA and then, um, finished out my CFA and and I will tell anyone who is considering the CFA that is by far the hardest of the three designations I have to get more so than even accounting so 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 how did you land in the current version of advisory business and role um I when I left the regional bank I went to a um local bank they I decided I wanted to go out on my own at that point that was in 2010 and that's where I started talking to Commonwealth but then a friend of mine had left to go to a local bank and they were looking to start a wealth management group and so she convinced me to talk to them and ultimately we decided to um, start their wealth management group but with Commonwealth and um so that was kind of the first time I'd ever really sort of run a wealth okay. management group. And then in 2019, we decided we really wanted to be independent of any sort of other organization um, and started Envision. Okay. So in the... In the banking context, as you're building this, I mean, was this a like you're working within the bank and they're like cr- cross referring bank clients internally to a wealth management division and, and you're building that way? Or were you still largely on your own to build just an under under their uh, umbrella with with some of the bank's capabilities? Um, mostly the latter, we were mostly on our own. They would occasionally send us somebody and, you know, sometimes they would be, you know, good prospects. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, it was interesting because when the bank examiners were, would come in and they'd ask us for our list of annuities we sold and like one year it was one and (laughs) other years it was zero. And they, they were like, huh? Explain to me what it is you do if you're not selling annuities. I'm like, Be- because do- the bank examiners were used to the fact that most other banks that got into the annuity business, I guess, particularly that time frame, the mid, like the 2010s, a lot of the bank business was just take the take the low rate CDs rolling off the books and roll them into annuities because the bank ironically got paid more for the annuity than it did for the bank CD. Correct. Yes, and so they were like, "Huh, this is strange." 
You're you're not selling annuities to CD clients? What are you doing here? Yeah, no, we don't do that. So so where does it go from here? Like what do you what do you think about as coming next from here for the business? I think we are we would love if any of your listeners are in the Memphis area and are looking for a new position, we would love to talk to you about being an associate advisor. Um because we do need some more advisory capacity. But really, I want to take super good care of our clients. I want to make them feel comfortable, secure, that they can go and do with their families, with their friends, exactly, and live the lives they want to live. And I want that for our team, too. You know, I want to be able to spend my summers in Colorado and we'll have Zoom calls or come out and stay with us. Um But it's, and I want to give opportunities for growth and ownership to our team and that they can continue to grow and evolve and and do what they want to do. Because for example, our our CIO, CCO, he'd be a great advisor, but that's not what he wants to do. He, He wants that role and he's great at it. And I have to give a lot of credit to Hank because he's the one, because before Clay and I started working together. Everything Clay did, well, except for the CCO stuff, um, I used to do. And Hank was like, Stacy, you're best with clients. And he's right. I, I love taking care of my clients. I love doing financial planning. And I love seeing people think that they want to do something and setting a plan in place and really being able to go and achieve that. And so... And Clay's much a much better portfolio manager than I am, and because I overthink it, I'm always like, you know, I'm an ENTP, so I'm always, I'm always trying to figure out the best way. And sometimes in portfolio management, you just need to leave it. And he's great at that. And we have gotten our portfolio management down to I think something that works exceptionally well for us and our clients. And, um, it's, and it, I think it's given him now that he's a partner and owner, significant upside potential. So, so is there a, a vision for how large you want to grow it? I just want to do organic growth and, and work and help nice people, but I don't want to ever have to be a conglomerate. I don't really ever want to have to hire a COO, I don't want to get that big because to me that starts to move me further away from my clients, I think. Um, so, you know, we, we will grow as our clients grow. And as long as we can live the lives that we want to live. And, you know, as Carl Richard says, yes, we have, I want to run a cute lifestyle practice. <laughs> Cute. Carl always likes to put that in air quotes, like a uh-huh. cute lifestyle practice that has $200 million under management. Yeah. That, that, you know, so it'd be nice to grow that to three or 400, but I don't want to, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot in your podcast and others is that, you know, now our minimums are higher than they used to be. We're a little bit choosier about who we work with. Um, and I think that that's been good for us. We've had a couple of clients that weren't nice that we 
just told them that we probably weren't con- going to continue to be a good fit for them. And, you know, that's hard to do, but ultimately you want your people to enjoy coming to work, enjoy taking care of clients, and you want your clients to feel well cared for. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? How I wish I'd taken more psychology classes in college because money is not math. The math is probably the easiest part of it, but it's, I think for me personally, it's the joy I get from telling people, yeah, that that's kind of crazy, but yeah, we can figure out a way for you to do that. Um, it's less fun telling people that your spending rate is not sustainable. Um, so I think that it's, it's the psychology of that and really how much personal gratification I get from walking through life with people. And you really do become good friends and you know things about your clients that quite frankly, nobody but their spouse probably knows about them. And that it's what we do really, really matters. And to taking good care of people and having good advisors out there is so, so important because when you're dealing with people's money, you really are dealing with their life and their security. And so it's not something that I take lightly. And it quite frankly bugs me when I hear some people talking about clients as though they're numbers. I mean, these are people's life savings. We are we have a special trust. And I think that that's a big part of why we are fiduciaries and why we sort of ran toward that label. So what was the low point in this journey for you? Um, when we left a, f- a previous um, employer, the, you know, the getting through that shift w- was much harder than I anticipated. So that was hard. But on the flip side, some of my clients really rallied around me and held my hand through it and the support. Wow. Yeah. It really was. And that's when I found out that I wasn't just somebody's advisor. Actually, one of my clients calls me their other daughter. Wow. And so there's all the messiness that comes, unfortunately, sometimes when you transition away from prior firms and transition with client bases. So was that, I guess, was that part of the dynamic that like you weren't thrilled in the environment and wanted to make a transition or you wanted to make a transition anyways, but then it got messy and trying to, to leave? I just wasn't happy in the environment. I was, I was ready to, to grow something that was ours and not someone else's. Hmm. And so, you know, and that's kind of hard when you work under a, mm-hmm. a a large firm or a bank environment. Like it's, they kind of like to put their name at the top of it. Right, and and also just some of the you know, some of the mundane stuff like the way we would deal with clients and the way we'd communicate maybe wasn't the way the organization wanted to communicate, but it worked for us. And so that was, that was difficult. And I will say it was, I was really glad when COVID hit and we started having like every other week, we had these all comer Zoom meetings where clients could get on, they could be on camera or not a large number of them were on camera and we talk about what was going on what sort some silly hack we had found that helped us get through you know 
the COVID shutdown and and that sort of thing. And it, so it was nice to be able to, you know, that was kind of crazy. People were like, you let your clients see each other? I'm like, well, they self-selected to come in. And and I think it, it helped everybody to sort of build a community. Interesting. So I, so I want to understand this further. So as, as COVID's hitting, so I guess like it's spring of of 2020, you just started convening Zoom meetings with clients every other week to just talk? I mean, like, was yeah. there a focus? Was there a theme? Just like... There was always like a theme, like we had Brad McMillan, who's Commonwealth's chief investment officer, as a guest on one of them. That was real popular. We talked about um, different things we'd found. Mine was something to cover up where your rates were growing out. Somebody shared another recipe. Clay talked about noise-canceling headphones because he has two very young kids and his wife was sitting right next to him trying to work from home. You know, so it, it was very personal. And I think Everybody was sort of looking for normalcy. Right. And we just kind of gave them something to hang on to. And we were, and then once vaccines started coming out, when we would find out if we heard about extra vaccines, we would reach out to clients and say, hey, you can go here or, you know, and and that sort of thing. So, uh, so how long were these Zoom meetings? They lasted about 45 minutes. And then when, as people kind of got more comfortable with the shutdowns or whatever, we noticed that less people were tuning in. So we stopped them. So how, how long did they go? I mean, like a couple of weeks or a couple of months? I think we did them. I think we probably had four or five of them. Okay. And then it seemed like, Life was kind of getting, you know, the new normal or the weird normal. Right. And then we opened up our office probably a lot more than you did in the D.C. area. And that was, you know, clients. And so we rotated through. We'd only have a couple people in the office each day. And then we had clients going, please, can I can I come in to see you? And I was like, yes, but you have to wear a mask. And um, and that was good. And then, you know, once we got to where we could hug people again, that was my favorite part. So what do you know now you wish you could like go back and tell you from 10, 20 years ago as you were starting down this advisor journey? I wish I'd gone on my own sooner. Hmm. What was, what was stopping you at the time? I think was true of a lot of women. We don't think we can, we think we need some support or whatever, um, and you know, there's a lot of studies that show women won't apply for a job unless they meet all the requirements, whereas men will do it if they meet like 50 to 60% of the requirements. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's some real truth in that. And I have, I have loved having our own firm and being able to really, somebody come up with an idea and think, okay, that's great. Let's do that. And and not having to go out and vet it with, you know, bank management or some other form of management. It's been super fun. Hmm. When it sounds like for you, just the, the control ability to be able to just do it the way you want to do it has been a big driver throughout. Like, 
doing, you know, using Trello to do the workflows the way that you want, just being able to do the client communication the the way that you want. Just it, it sounds like that's that's been a pretty big theme for you throughout. And it has. And one of the things that I have been pretty transparent with my clients is I take my own advice. So I save the way I encourage my clients to save. My portfolios are managed by Clay in the same models that they're in. And, you know, I do um, have my own personal mission statement. And one of those is to spend more time in Colorado. And so at first I was scared that my clients would be like, oh, she's not taking care of business. But my clients have figured out, and I think COVID in some ways helped, that you're really pretty location agnostic. So when I was in Colorado in September, and it was time we do surge meetings. So we have most of our client meetings are in the spring and in the fall. And so we were scheduling them. So they just scheduled, when I was in Colorado, they just scheduled all the Zoom meetings while I was there. And that was fun because they weren't for the most part, those clients weren't in Memphis anyway. So it was kind of fun. And I showed them my view and they were like, okay, I wouldn't come back. And, (laughs) and so that, that was, I had to get over being scared to be authentic. And, um, that was, that was a big one. And was there anything in particular that helped you get over that challenge of being scared to be authentic? Um, How much I love Colorado and how much I love being out there and um, and seeing that I could get it done. And that's something like the Trello and it's asynchronous. I can see if I'm looking at seven or eight o'clock at night, I know exactly where all the projects were during the day. Even if I forgot to send an email Mm. at 430 saying, give me an update, it's all right there. So, and they like it too, because then it's easy to see, like, because if you email two people, because you're not sure who's got the capacity to do it, then it's, they have to talk and figure it out. If I put it on Trello, it becomes obvious who's, somebody's grabbed it and is working on it. So what advice would you give to newer advisors thinking about becoming an advisor today? I would say that it's it's a very financially rewarding career, but if you really want to be successful, you really have to care about people because I think that clients can see that, they can feel it, and you'll always have a little bit of a struggle if you're not, if everything is not in line, if people sort of into it that maybe you're not really looking out for them that you have some ulterior motive. I think it's because, you know, fraud is as high as it is. I think that, and people are really wanting to engage with somebody that can help them through whatever life throws at them. And if they wanted just somebody cold, they would just use a robo. Or use one of the, you know, the big, the Fidelities or the Vanguards or whatever, where it's mostly, um, you know, know, the face changes or whatever. So I think that caring about people is the most important thing. And then you can't ever stop learning. 
spoke, spoken as a trooper who has their CPA and CFA and CFP, which I, I kind of feel like is the holy trinity of advanced designations and, and, and degrees. I have a funny story about the CPA. So I actually have an active CPA permit. I was going to let it lapse and just go to CPA retired. And a client wrote me a note and said, I, I hope you don't do that because we really, your clients really appreciate the value that you add by reviewing our tax returns and helping us out and making sure we're aware and being tax smart. And I was like, oh, dang, I got 40 hours of continuing ed to do before the end of the year. (laughs) All right. I'll dive on in for the CPE. Yep. And I do love that Kitsis gives me CPE. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, well, I, I, in in that context, I mean, there's so many advisors these days that are coming into financial planning from the from the CPA side of the business. I think it's kind of similar to your journey. Like they they started the numbers accounting side of the business and found they really like the people side for more. And that tends to be a lot of what pulls CPAs over to the financial planning side. So we had all these folks that were CPA, CFP that, that kept saying like we uh, – like, can we just get both in one place? Because we don't want to have to do them separately because that's, mm-hmm. that's twice as many hours. So try yeah. to make things simpler for all the CPA financial planners out there. And we appreciate you more than you could possibly know. Happy to help. <laughs> so so as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And and just one of the themes that always comes up is the the word success means very different things to different people. And so you built this wonderfully successful advisory business with 200 million under management. And so the business is going well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Um, the There's an adage out there that you're only as happy as your most unhappy child, that my kids are happy, they're in a good spot, that I can um, spend time with my husband and our favorite place in the world in Colorado, and that I can provide a very great place to work for my employees and my clients feel well cared for. It really, and that everybody wants to show up for work. I mean, everybody wants to take their vacations and I encourage them, mandate that they take them, but that coming to work is fun and they feel value in what they do. And I think that's important in this day and age. Yeah. And, you know, in, in this world of so-called great resignation and, and so many people and job changes, it's, it's powerful when you can just actually do work at a firm where you like what you do and you like who you lurk, work for and you like what you do with them. Yes. Pretty cool place to be. Yeah. And I want to keep it that way. And so, you know, we are going to be pretty, um, deliberate about who we work with and to your point, how we add clients and who, who sort of, we let on our bus, so to speak. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Stacey, for joining us on the financial advisor success podcast. It's great to be here. It's truly an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.